0: Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about the passion of Jesus. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to participate in our Holy Week events. With Ash Wednesday behind us and Lent upon us, it means that Holy Week will be here soon. If you don't know what Holy Week is, it is the week that Christians remember, the final week of Jesus' earthly life. I read it like this somewhere. Holy Week honors the week that changed the world. It begins with Palm Sunday and concludes at Easter. Our church has four important events happening in observance of Holy Week and the works of Jesus it remembers. We'd like you to be a part of all of them. The events are on Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and of course, Easter. All of these events will look different, but I believe each will be valuable expressions of worship and meaningful to your souls. You can participate in our Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter gatherings in person or online. If you're in our area, we'd love for that to be in person. Maundy Thursday is an online only event. I'm not going to explain each of these events here, but instead I want to tell you to go to wilsonville.church slash holy week. Once you're there, click on the images to learn about the events. Again it is wilsonville.church slash holy week holy week i want to make a special note about easter i'm excited about it it's the first easter that will feel normal in three years can you believe that we desperately want to celebrate the resurrection of jesus with you and so consider this your invitation to join us also i want you to know that we have an easter basket filled with some pretty cool stuff for the first 25 people that let us know they are going to attend our easter service you can do that by going to wilsonville.church slash Easter. That is all I need to let you know right now, but again make sure you go to wilsonville.church slash Holy Week I hope you'll do it right now if you can because I really do want to celebrate Jesus and the final week of his life with you. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon helps you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Many years ago, I was, I was dating this Episcopalian girl. I'll just throw the whole denomination under the bus. And, uh, and one day her mom said to me, just like, it was almost out of nowhere. We were having some discussion about, some stupid discussion looking back about whether, whether Christmas or Easter was more important. Uh, like you could separate those things into, you know, some giant different events. But uh, I said, well, I think every day was important because Jesus, you know, had to live a, a sinless, innocent life. And and then this woman who who had been a Christian her whole life said, Well, Jesus sinned. Like, there was some guilt in Jesus. And I I was taken really aback by that because uh, you know, I didn't know everything, but I felt like I did at that point. But I I at least knew that the Bible said that Jesus was sinless, that Jesus had not done anything that that dishonored the Father, that went against the will of God. And to her credit, like I came back, uh, like a few days later, she wasn't home. And uh, I just like posted like these verses, like the 95 thesis on her refrigerator door about the sinlessness of Jesus. And, and the next time I saw her, she was like, she's like, oh, yeah, I believe you now. Like it was, it was like that. Like if I could change everybody's minds like that, it'd be great. But, but in this passage today that we're going to look at as we continue to make our way through through the book of John, there's two things kind of mixed together. And one of those things is, the innocence of Jesus. Uh, Last week, I I started this sermon series called Passion, and it's on the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. And and the first thing John kind of does is he begins this new section in this gospel called John is he wants you to remember, if you were here last week, I hope you remember this, he wants you to remember that the, the Jesus that he has talked about for 17 chapters is the same Jesus who is going to suffer. It's not like we have a new Jesus. Like Jesus, you know, flips a switch and now he's suffering. Jesus, when the you know the rest of the gospel, he's been majestic Jesus or whatever it might be. And so John begins by by really showing us in the story of Jesus' arrest, like, hey, this Jesus who's going to suffer is the same one that I have told you is God in human form. Now in our passage today not to bury the lead too much, but but what John is going to really show us as he moves through the suffering of Jesus is is really that Jesus is king. Even in these moments, Jesus is king, and I think even more clearly, Jesus is innocent. I think what this story is about is, is the innocence of Jesus. John wants you to know that Jesus is not dying because he has sinned because he has done something wrong or even because he has broken the law because he deserves to be killed. In fact, what John wants you to know is that, that this isn't illegal trial where Jesus, you know, is murdered in a judicial sense. He is murdered. He is killed without any reason, any good reason at all. And here's how that story begins in John 18, 15 through 17. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Now here's the first denial by Peter. If you've been around the church for a long time, if you've grown up in, you know, Christian circles, then you then you know about Peter's denial. Jesus predicts this denial that that Peter will deny him 3 times before the rooster crows. And this is the first. I'm not going to read the other two, but it happens two more times and immediately the rooster starts to crow. Now this is a heartbreaking story. Here's this guy who's hung out with Jesus. He's one of Jesus' closest friends. He's devoted to him He's declared that he would die for him but here in this moment after jesus arrest he immediately it's kind of staggering almost how quickly he denies even knowing jesus three times now what's fascinating about the entirety of this section that we'll look at today which is a big section of scripture is like the way it's written by the author of john is is like completely unemotional in fact, emotions are completely taken out of it except for where Pilate, who is a Roman leader who decides Jesus' fate, at least in an earthly sense, he sa- it says that he's scared, that he fears. Other than that, like the emotion isn't there. And that's most interesting, I think, in this Peter story, this denial story, because we read in Matthew 26 that Peter weeps bitterly immediately after the rooster crows. There's this immediate regret. There's this immediate remorse. He is is broken by this thing that he has just done by, by denying his Lord and Savior, and even, I would say, his good friend. But here in John, it doesn't seem to be about the emotion. And oftentimes, when we think through the passion of Jesus, The way I often preach about it, talk about it, what we'll do at Good Friday, is we try to draw people into, we try to connect ourselves in this emotional way to this story that we're reading about what Jesus is suffering. And I think that's so important. But that's not what takes place here in this telling of it. Instead, John tells us this emotional story in a way that you know, has led scholars to recognize how unemotional it feels in his telling of the story. And I think that, that maybe the reason for that is that John is continuing just to try to show you what he's been trying to show you throughout, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come to save you from your sins if you will believe in him. And here in the telling, he not only wants us to see the innocence of Jesus, the innocence and the majesty of Jesus, he also wants you to see the incredible guilt of people. And I think that the emotion maybe is taken out of it because he wants to lay before you this very simple idea that Jesus is innocent, but people, including you and me, are guilty. Jesus is innocent, we are the guilty ones. Now, if you would have seen Peter start to moan and cry, and is telling story, which he does, right? But maybe then you start to feel bad for Peter and you start to think about Peter, but this story isn't really about Peter. The story is about humanity's guilt and Jesus' innocence because that is the reason that Jesus is going to the cross. And that is the reason that Jesus is able to suffer for our sins. Now, Listen to what happens. There's kind of this parenthetical little mini story here in verses 19 through 21. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Now this, this is brought up and it shows us how illegal this trial really is. I uh, have this stuff written down. He was not called to incriminate himself. That was like, you know, like in the kind of Jewish world and the way they did trials is like, you automatically just pleaded the fifth, right? Like you don't have to incriminate yourself. And here they're trying Jesus in a way where he would have to. And and uh, they they had to have witnesses to establish the, the things that they are accusing him of. And, and here there's no witnesses, at least in this first kind of trial with the Jewish people. Uh, it was... Not his duty, even in, in the Jewish world, to demonstrate his own innocence. He didn't need to fight for his own innocence and try to prove that he had done nothing wrong. And so here we we begin to witness like this is a sham of, of a trial. Like these people are not trying to give Jesus a fair trial. They're trying to kill him, they're trying to murder him. And it teaches us the same thing: Jesus is innocent and people are guilty. Now, I do think it's interesting here that they ask him about his disciples. That's weird a little bit, right? Like They're like, tell us about your disciples. But Jesus' response is so in line with everything we've seen, especially in the farewell discourse, his final kind of sermon, his final conversation with his disciples, because they're we see him really demonstrating love to them, even though he was facing this terrible thing. And, and, and we see him even in the arrest, how he, he, he says, look, I'm the guy you're looking for. And he, he says, you know, let these guys go. He's protecting the sheep that God has given him. And here he does the same thing. They say, tell us about your disciples. And he, he says, I, I, I. Like he focuses on himself and, and the way that, that he is at the center of this. He doesn't bring his disciples into it at all. And I love that Jesus, man, as a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, I love that even in the hardest moments that the world has ever known, as he is facing, you know, evil in in its greatest form, as, as darkness has had its hour, as it says in the book of John, Jesus still is taking care of the people that he loves, the people that follow him. And so Jesus, even in this response, he points to how a trial should go. Like, hey, you're supposed to go find witnesses or whatever. And and they don't like it, um, you know, how it is when you're guilty, right? Because when, when we are guilty of something, we have an overreaction to people who are on the opposite side of us. And in fact, you can find out people are guilty by, by sometimes their overreaction. You ask your child, like, hey, did you do something wrong? And there's excuses and there's all these things. And here, one of the officials for the high priest slaps Jesus. And they slap Jesus because he's disrespected the high priest, which Jesus has not done here. And, And Jesus' response is fascinating. In verse 23, he says, If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Now, I see something for each and every person in this passage here. I mean, if Jesus has said something wrong, then go ahead, right? Like He's like, "Just strike me, but if he hasn't, then don't." And, and what I see all around me in our world is people who strike down Jesus without ever considering whether what he has said is right or wrong. And I think Jesus lays this out for, for every person, this challenge to every person. like, do not strike him down if you haven't actually examined the truth of what he has said now i i people reject jesus for a lot of reasons right and most often i find in our world today they reject jesus because they don't like the way that his followers act that's really common they also reject Jesus, I think, because they look at cultural Christianity and they want to push back against that and say, "Well, I'm not right- winged and i'm uh, I like science and kind of these things that get, you know painted over Christianity. They reject that. But often it's just like somebody was mean to me in a church. I actually just got an email uh, this yesterday it was yesterday, maybe uh, uh, maybe longer ago than that, but sometime in the recent uh, past and and somebody said that that people at this church had had been unkind to him. And he was thinking about leaving the faith. And that's that's what happens. Like, people look at Christians and they then disrespect, disregard, reject Jesus. And Jesus puts forward this challenge and he just says to every one of us, don't reject me if what I am saying is right. And so I would say to you, to every one of you, examine the truth of the words of Jesus before you reject Jesus. Like actually look into what Jesus has said before you reject him. I think a lot of people think Jesus said things that he didn't say at all. And so they reject Jesus based on th- th- what they've heard Jesus said. I think it, it could have been a Benjamin Franklin quote, you know, and like, well, it just gets tied to Jesus. And, and so look and, and examine the reality, the truth of Jesus before rejecting Jesus. Jesus, please, what does that mean? That means read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and and get a sense for yourself of what Jesus has actually said. If you think it's untrue at the end of that, well, maybe then strike down Jesus. I'll pray that that wouldn't be the case. But I don't think, as we'll see in a second, that you can actually find true truth anywhere besides this man whose name is Jesus. It says, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. This is dripping with irony here. Like, I mean, they want to say ceremonially clean so that they can eat the Passover meal. And so they're avoiding this trial where they're sending Jesus into, and Jesus has come to die as the Passover lamb. He has come to die as the Passover lamb so that they can be clean. The, the story of Passover, if you don't know it, it's this ancient Jewish holiday where God passed over the houses of the Israelites, not killing their firstborn son, if they had the blood of the lamb over their doorway. And and so the book of John really takes hold of this theme of death in order that there may be life and and makes Jesus, connects Jesus to the Passover. That's a big theme in the gospel of John from the very beginning when John the Baptist, different John looks at Jesus as the lamb of the world. and And so from the very beginning of the telling of Jesus' life in the gospel of John, John has connected Jesus to the Passover lamb. And here at the end of his life where he is Actually, being tried, allowing for himself to be arrested and tried and ultimately killed as the Passover lamb. These people are so concerned with this ceremony, this holiday, that that they won't even go in, but really they're condemning to death. They will condemn to death, as we'll see in a few moments, the one who is the Passover lamb, the perfect fulfillment of the Passover story, the one who has come to die so that they might be clean and they might be so clean that they can live forever and then Pilate comes out this Roman governor and he asks uh, what charges they are bringing and they respond like he's a criminal and uh, and it's like they almost expect Pilate just to trust them you can go read this later and he tells them uh, to try him themselves and and they're like hey we don't have any right to execute him and this is where the story starts to build right because Pilate's just coming out there not thinking anything about execution probably and and now they're saying well we, we don't have the right to jewish people to execute this man and 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 which is funny by the way because they've already at one point picked up stones to kill him on the spot without any trial at all but here they are getting all you know righteous or whatever it might be uh but listen to verse 34 this took place to fulfill what jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die jesus was crucified not stoned And that's really maybe what's at the very heart of this idea that they say, we don't have the right to execute. They want him to be crucified. They want him to die the world's worst torturous death. It's the most torturous death that mankind had ever known, both created and perfected by the Romans to make people suffer for breaking certain laws. Uh, Leon Morris says, Caiaphas would see this as a way of, of discrediting Jesus John is the way Jesus took away the sin of the world. And so in the crucifixion, we have these two things where, where where the group who crucifies Jesus looks at it and says, see, we told you he couldn't be the majestic being that he was claiming to be. But in, in this execution, we who come to know Jesus as our Savior recognize the glorious nature of what he is doing on the cross. And John sees it that way. He recognizes the crucifixion for these Jewish people would negate everything Jesus ever said. But in fact, in fact, we who are Christians see it as a way of fulfilling everything Jesus had ever said. So John looks at him in this trial and he says, are you the king of the Jews? He says that in every one of the gospels. It actually, that's the first question out of Jesus' mouth, and what's interesting is here, the you is emphatic, and it's like, it's more like, we could read it as like, can you be the king of the Jews? Like, is it possible that you, who's just, you know, a poor Jewish man who's wandered the countryside and doesn't have a huge following, is it possible that you are king of the Jews? Jesus responds with a question, it's pretty normal for Jesus, about Uh, whose idea that was. And Pilate's like, I'm not Jewish. Like, you were people handed you over to me. And then what follows is this incredibly dramatic scene. I would say one of the most dramatic scenes in scripture. I I read it described this way. There's the lowly majesty of Jesus and the proud majesty of the Roman governor. And they kind of collide in this conversation that they have. Uh, Leon Morris, again, who wrote a giant commentary on the book of uh, John, he says, he will be slain, but this does not detract from his majesty. John wants you to see that while he will be condemned, because this, this is a story about Jesus being condemned, his trial and his condemnation and his denial. And even in these moments, his majesty will stand. But even more to the point of this story, His innocence will still be there. He'll still be innocent. Listen to verses 36 through 38. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. Now this is, this is, I think, just like I said, an incredible moment. First, Jesus just declares, my kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. Now as a Christian, I believe that Jesus' kingdom is in this world. It resides, it exists within those of us who follow him, but it's not a kingdom of this world. And Pilate's like, oh, so you are a king. It's this weird conversation. It's like he's almost missing the point, but Jesus like makes, I think he just says this thing that, it should have got him off the hook completely. He's like, if my kingdom was in this world, then wouldn't we be fighting? And we know if we were here last week that in his arrest, he told his disciples not to fight. He wasn't trying to fight. He wasn't trying to start an insurrection. He wasn't trying to overthrow the government. All the things that they thought a king would do, a king of the Israelites would do, he's not trying to do any of those. His kingdom is more important than that. It's a kingdom that we cannot see. It's a kingdom where he rules and reigns in the hearts of people by the very thing that he is doing now, suffering and dying for their sins and then coming back to life. Jesus' response is akin to something like this. I, it didn't, I didn't say that, but I'm not denying it. But then he offers his purpose. He came to bear witness to the truth. He came to bear witness to the truth. Now, truth is really fascinating in the gospel of John and went down just a little bit of a, a rabbit trail this week. And I want to tell you a little bit what I found, but the most important thing that, you're gonna, that you need to know about truth is that truth is intimately connected to the person of Jesus in the gospel of John. For example, people that are on the side of truth listen to Jesus. People on the side of truth listen to Jesus, but it goes much deeper than that. Uh, truth is a huge deal. Jesus is full of truth, Grace and truth come through Jesus. If you live by the truth, you come to the light. We worship in truth. John testified to the truth. It was Jesus. The truth will set you free. Satan has no truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. We are sanctified by truth. God's word is truth. Like truth is a big deal, and it's all centered on. It's all connected to Jesus and who. Jesus is. This, this, I found a, a dissertation that I, I thought was very helpful. I didn't read all of the 128 pages studying for this sermon, but uh, when I find dissertations that I think will be helpful for the sermon, I, I literally read the introduction and the conclusion because they usually tell you everything you need to know. And in uh, Bastian Ogin's uh, dissertation, Bastian, if you're out there, uh, good job, man. Uh, he says, John sees truth as an absolute concept incompatible with relativism or pluralism it is deeply christocentric but also trinitarian this means that it is intellectual and factual but at the same time deeply personal relational and active i think there's an answer really in the gospel of john to pilate's question what is truth it's god god is truth in him there is no Falsehood. There is no lie. God is truth. We 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 ascertain truth. We we get our truth from God. In fact, I I would make the case that we could really uh, really know nothing if God had not told us. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 hard truth of life, the deeper things as revealed in Scripture. Those are the the real things that we can actually. No. And then I've been alive long enough. I'm coming up on 40 to know that that things that we that we just think are so true often end up not being true. And I can tell you that the one, the one thing that's never changed in my life, the one thing that I can look at and say, this has been true the entirety of my life are the things of God, the things that God has revealed to me in his word. God is truth. Now let me not let me say that the reverse is not necessarily true. Truth is not God. God is truth. Truth is not God. God is truth. And, and what he reveals to us, what he gives to us, is true. Uh, when I think about the truth of God, <laughs> I think about comedians right now. And um, I know that's weird. You didn't see that coming at all. But, but I think about comedians and I, I think about the humor our, our society accepted 20, 10, 20 years ago. And now, how so many of those people and these things that they said that society all embraced this funny, acceptable, good now is no longer good. And these people, you know, they lose their Netflix contracts and all of that because these these things they said were, you know, now we go, well, that's not okay anymore. And I think about that because as a Christian, now I'm not saying that we always get this right. Again, don't not follow Jesus because of his followers. but But as a Christian, so much of what these comedians joked about 10 or 15 years ago, should have been abhorrent to us to begin with, right? Like the sexualization of women, the the hatred towards people of different sexualities, like racial humor, all of this is against what we believe as Christians, what is true to begin with. And so I watch humor and I think, man, humor will shift again in my lifetime. And we'll find society will say, these things are no longer funny or these things are funny again, but But God is truth. And that which comes from him will never stop being true. And so I can look at his word and I can go, should it be funny or not to me? That will never change if I'm finding humor in the things that I think God would find humor in. And so here Pilate hangs this question out there, maybe just to get, you know, on with things. Like he's just being flippant almost. What is truth? You know, nobody knows. But the answer is sitting right in front of him. God is truth. And Jesus, who is God in human form, is a revelation of that truth in, frankly, a way that we can understand much better because he became flesh. He became man. I would hope, man, I just, again... If you look at Jesus and Jesus lays this thing out that I've already said, like he said, examine me, examine me before he strike me down, at least understand what I've said. And then, he, and then Pilate asked this question, what is truth? And I would just say, like, I believe that it is Jesus that is, that's where truth comes from. I think every word he spoke was true. And the, as the years goes by, like sometimes people like what he had to say and other times they don't, but it just seems to remain true to me. And so look at the life of Jesus and and just at least discover whether or not you think it's real, it's true. And if you're a Christian, this phrase, I hate this phrase. What's your truth? I hate that phrase. I hate it because it's so postmodern and like it's relative, like makes truth relative. I don't care what your truth is. I care what the truth is. And I believe that that is found in the person of Jesus. And then Pilate goes out and he declares Jesus innocent. And this is, you know, even more to the heart of the whole story. Like here's this Roman governor who is like going out of his way for no good reason. He can snap his fingers, send the guy to the cross. No big deal. Everybody's happy. Everybody's good. But he can't like find a reason to execute this Jesus. So he goes out. He's like, hey, he's innocent. And then he's like, has this idea. He's like, hey. Can I release Jesus to you? Because I always release to you one prisoner at Passover. And it honestly feels like he's fishing. He's like, I'll make him happy. And also like, you know, they can kind of feel like Jesus was a prisoner. Like, you know, I indicted him, but also he gets to go free and, And and they're not having it at all. And and they want Barabbas, who's a guy who's been part of an uprising and literally committed murder. Uh, And and so we read this in John 19, 1 through 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Here we see a bunch. Jesus is scorched, just like being whipped, but with rock and shards of metal and things in the whip. So his back is like, the skin on his back is ripped off. And, And then he's mocked. And I don't know why. This is just a quirk to me. I'm not trying to talk you into being my way. But the part that makes me emotional about the story of Jesus is often the part where he gets mocked. And I think it's in large part just because, I know what that feels like whereas I don't know what it feels like to be whipped you know like and so it's just easier to to feel that and to I don't know but but he's mocked and then the crown of thorns is is placed into his head which would have been horrible and then he's slapped it says here but he's also we know from other gospels it's like more like he's hit with a reed and then he's spit on this is painful and humiliating and the beginning of torture. And what I want to do, even now, as I stand here, is I want to, like, play on your emotions there and go into the details about what this would have felt like. But there's none of that in the Gospel of John. He's not asking you to feel things here. He's asking you to believe things. That Jesus is innocent and people are guilty, that Jesus is innocent and you are guilty. And that's why he should become, that's why you need to make him your savior. What's interesting about this here is that actually in John's telling, it seems like Pilate almost has this done to Jesus in order to appease the crowds. He almost does this to Jesus because he's he's recognizing Jesus innocent, and he's like, maybe. If I just have him scourged, maybe if I just, you know, allow him to be hurt a little, maybe then they'll let him go. Even in this first, you know, kind of terrible suffering moment that we read about in the Gospel of John, even in this, we see a declaration of Jesus' innocence. There is no reason for him to be killed. There's no reason for it. He's done nothing that deserves death. And yet he's going to die anyway. Why? Because of the utter guilt of people. Jesus is innocent and we are guilty. After this, Pilate comes back out. He declares Jesus innocence. He's innocent. And he brings Jesus out wearing the crown and the purple robe, if you know this scene. And then he uh, takes off the crowd through this. and. Again, it appears that he's trying to, he's trying to get rid of Jesus, not to kill Jesus. Uh, it, it appears that way because he, he brings him out and it's almost, it's almost as if, it's almost as if he brings him out in this robe with the crown of thorns, Jesus' bloody mess. It's almost as if he's saying, like, hey, come on, guys. <laughs> this is no king. This is no king. Just let the guy go. But what happens? They chant crucify, crucify. And again, Pilate declares his innocence. Do you see the theme? He's innocent. Pilate declares his innocence. He uses this word like it's, it's a word that can be used in mockery. It is an extra biblical language, like that, that means something like it says, here is this man, but it's almost like poor creature. It feels like an old person thing to say, but like, oh, poor creature, like, it, like this guy, like he's a nobody. That's what, that's what Pilate is trying to say he's like, crucify him yourselves, and he wants no part of this, and then in John 19, 7, the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, you must die, because he claimed to be the son of God, well, now, now Pilate's really freaked out, I mean, he wanted no part of this anyway, he's, he's having a bad day here, he's, he, he recognized, I mean, so clearly recognizes the innocence of this guy, and, and, and yet, Jesus is not even like claiming to be king. There's no insurrection here. But now you add this other layer that, that, um, that, that Jesus is claiming or has claimed to be the son of God. And here, listen to verse eight through 11, verse eight through 11. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. I mean, Pilate's freaked out, right? And he's like, dude, you got to talk to me. Like, I have power. And Jesus is like, this is all part of God's plan, man. You, you have no real authority here. And at the same time, he, he recognizes the guilt probably of the high priest. Uh, like, hey, you're not as guilty as the one who has, who has handed me over, which is Caiaphas. But notice he doesn't say that Pilate is innocent. He doesn't say that he has no guilt. He says, the other guy is more guilty than you are. Can you just see that John wants us to recognize the guilt of people? He wants us to see the guilt of these people. And and, and subsequently, he wants us to recognize our own guilt, especially as contrasted with the innocence of our Savior Jesus, he tries to free Jesus again, and then the people make this incredible claim: "They're like, you're no friend of Caesar if you let him go because he claimed to be a king." Now, this is a big deal because uh, Caesar, you know, King Pilate, Governor uh, Pilate already has a bad reputation as far as sticking up for the kingdom, uh, and. And so basically they're making a threat here. They're like, hey, if you don't have this guy killed, we're gonna go tell Caesar that, that you did not execute somebody who was claiming the throne. Caesar's not gonna be cool with. Pilate himself might be killed. They make this incredible threat. It is so crazy because these people hate Caesar. They hate the Caesar. They hate everything he stands for. They hate the Roman government. But here they're like, you're no friend of Caesar. So Pilate brings Jesus out. Sits him down at the judgment seat. John reminds us that it was Passover and about noon. And then in verses 14 through 16, we read, Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. We have no way of hearing it, but I sense the desperation in Pilate. The man who ultimately, not ultimately, but ultimately in a worldly sense, determines live or die. I mean, ultimately, he's going to have to go thumbs up or thumbs down, right? Like he's going to be the one to make the call here. And he does not want to say, kill him. You can tell throughout this whole story, he recognizes something different in Jesus. Like he recognizes Not only his innocence, but his kingdom. He recognizes in some way that he is in front of the king and and he recognizes his innocence and, and he just can't understand why they would want to kill this man who seems frankly unimportant, but yet so in control of everything that's going on around them. But as John tells it to us, we know. We know what Pilate did not. It's because he, Caiaphas, All the people in the crowd, you and me and all of humanity, we are guilty. Jesus was innocent and we are guilty. Jesus is so innocent that he is the truth that Pilate could not even understand. He is the truth that we all long for. He is king and he is innocent, but we are guilty. My hope for you today is that you would recognize just that. For some, man, that's, I mean, for me, I'll just tell you my story. That, that's what made me commit my life to Jesus. I recognized one day how incredibly guilty I was, guilt that nobody could ever talk me out of. I mean, I knew that I had sinned against God. I just knew that I wasn't what I should be. Even if you took God out of the equation, I had done too many things, too many times, to be considered good or right. And in that same moment, by God's divine grace, I recognized what incredible grace it would take for somebody so innocent as Jesus to suffer horribly on my behalf. And it broke me and I chose to follow Jesus. And so I hope that some of you, as you, as you read a story about your guilt and our guilt and Jesus innocent, so innocent that this governor didn't even want to condemn him despite having, you know, no earthly reason not to just get on with this day. I hope that you would choose to give your life to Jesus too. But For the rest of us, we must, who who are Christians who have already made that commitment to follow Jesus because of that, this needs to just permeate our thoughts about who Jesus is because the more we recognize our guilt and the more we recognize his innocence, the more we serve him with the entirety of our lives. It's when we start to feel self-righteous It's when we start to feel like we deserve what Jesus did for us. It's when we don't feel like we're as bad as the other guys that we struggle to, to be excited about what Jesus has done for us. Or when we, when we, we struggle to live for him with the entirety of who we are and what we're about. It's when we start to feel like we kind of deserve Jesus death. At least we deserve it more than other people that we Don't live for Jesus the way that we should. And so I would hope, you know, as we celebrate, as we're moving through this Lenten season, moving up to Easter, that that if I could leave you again with one thought today, it would be, remember how incredibly guilty you are. You knew it at one point, but remember it again, how incredibly guilty you are and how utterly innocent the majestic King Jesus was and is. And let that drive you to serve him all that you are. Let me pray that you'll do that. Lord Jesus, I, I know that I, I can do it. I can feel, um, you know, I can feel less guilty. I can forget how majestic and innocent you were. Um, and and Lord, then I just don't celebrate you the way that I should. It becomes my goal, God, to glorify myself. I would never say it like that, but but to glorify myself, to move my position forward, and, and I leave behind my desire and willingness to serve you. And, and so today, Lord, I pray, God, for those who are not Christians, compel them that you are the truth. Jesus, that you are the embodiment of truth, that that the only truly trustworthy thing is you. And God let them recognize their guilt and, and I pray that they would give their lives to you, the Savior, the Savior who came to suffer all this that we're studying for them. And then Jesus, I pray, for those of us that are Christians. And I pray that like I just said about myself, that all of us, God, would remember, like we did it first, how guilty we are, how sinful we are, how you know many different times and ways we've rejected what you've asked, God, of us. And then we would remember that the God-man, you, Jesus, were completely innocent, no sin ever, not one. And yet you chose to die for us, the guilty. The contrast of that, God, while not told in an emotional way here, I think drives how we emotionally connect to you sometimes, Lord. But I pray that this morning, this afternoon, God, that it would drive us to live more fully for you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.